When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to On The Ledge, the podcast that cares about your houseplants as much as you do. I'm Jane Perone, your guide to the pollen and the pests, the roots and the rots. In this week's show, I discover the benefits of biophilia, meet lovely listener Eva, and I answer a question about cacti. Uh, But first, um, a bit of an apology. Last week's show, number 124 came out much later than usual. Um, I had real difficulties uploading the show to my podcast host. I'm blaming dodgy hotel Wi-Fi. Um, I did manage to get the show out shortly before midnight UK time. So I'm apologies that it was so late. It was just one of those days where nothing went my way. So I was really struggling about 11.30 at night. Uh, and then an email came in that really lifted my heart and reminded me why I was still up trying to get the podcast out at that time of night when I was extremely tired. And I want to share a little bit of that email with you. It came from Erin in Australia. And I'm sure you know that wildfires have been raging there in the last few months. And here's an extract from Erin's email. I just wanted to send you a quick thank you. I'm from the outskirts of Sydney, Australia. The fires have been close to my home, but not close enough to be in immediate danger. However, where I work was a different story. Some of my clients have lost everything and others have lost their gardens, but their homes were saved. I was in a little town called Buxton when the fires came through. We were told to evacuate, but the road out was completely blocked. We had no choice but to stay and fight for the property. The fire came to within 50 metres of where we were. It was the most terrifying night of my life. Firefighters lost their lives only five minutes down the road. It was horrible. Anyway, I'm writing to thank you for your podcast. When I could finally leave two days later, I came home, put my headphones in and listened to some old episodes of On The Ledge. It gave me peace and time out in my mind. I think without it, I would have been emotionally wrecked. It was a comforting and soothing sound in my ears as I replayed the last few days in my mind. So I just wanted to say thank you from the other side of the world. Okay, um, it's got something in my eye there. Um, That was really lovely to read because it just not but I'm not beating myself up here um, at all but I just love to hear about the impact that the show has on individual people who are going through hard times because that is really what is makes it worthwhile and I know that I'm constantly asking for money and support and but the reason why I do that is to keep the show going and to keep me going quite frankly but also but just knowing the impact that the show has around the world at For people who are having good times, having bad times, it just really does feel great to know that it's having that kind of impact. So Erin, thank you for that. And thank you for supporting the show and telling me about that. And my heart goes out to any of you readers who are in Australia right now struggling with difficult situations through the bushfires. 
And I really hope that On The Ledge is providing a little crumb of comfort at this really horrible time. So thank you, Erin, and thank you, all of you listening. I'll put a couple of links in the show notes to places where you can donate to the Australian bushfires, both to help people and animals affected. Okay, I've gathered myself now. Let's move on. I've had some lovely shiny new reviews for the show. Thank you to Houseplant Human, who wrote ridiculously calming, as well as being the voice of reason in a veritable chaos of horticultural education. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Uh, thank you very much for that, Houseplant Human. And Ailes87 said that every episode is a big green hug. And thanks also to Blake Homie, who said, informative and witty, Jane never disappoints. Oh, you're setting the bar high there, Blake, but I shall do my best. So if you haven't left a review for On The Ledge, give a plant pod a break and tap out a few words about what you think of the show. It gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, which is rather pleasant. And it also helps other people get a sense of what the show's like. And now uh, prick up your lugs if you happen to be a British listener. You may have heard about the plant health regulations that came into force in December last year, protecting the UK from plant pests and diseases coming in from overseas. Now, these new plant passports have been causing some headaches for people who are selling on a small scale and not sure if they should register, and also for bigger nurseries too. Now, I've managed to secure an interview with the UK's plant health chief, Nicola Spence, but I need to know what you would like me to ask her. So if you've got a burning question about how we're going to stop plant diseases entering the country or you want to find out a bit more about whether you need to be registered for plant passports or how to look out for these on the plants you buy, drop me a line and I will put those questions to Nicola. You need to get them to me by Tuesday next week at midday UK time. That's the 28th of January. Oh, how's it going? You're on the moss. Oh, it's lovely and cool. Yeah. I can imagine if you've been outside, you know, you've, you've been to the gym or something, you come back and stand on here. Yeah. In fact, I'm just going to take a seat on the, the mm-hmm. lovely sofa. But of course, right. you know, it's durable because we, we walk in the forest on moss yeah. all the time. So yeah. it's, it's going to take that foot traffic. Yeah. You know, and you can also, you can sit on it if you so wish. I had my picture taken on it last yes. week, yes. sitting yes. cross-legged on it, but... It is, and you see online various few different how-tos to to make your own moss mat. So it's a bit of fun. This is the sound of me testing out a moss-covered rug. Yes, a rug covered in real moss in a plant-filled room designed by Michael Perry, a.k.a. Mr. Plant Geek, and a former guest on the show. He designed a suite at the Lehman Lock Hotel in London and plastered it in plants back in November last year in a project by The Joy of Plants, which is the UK marketing arm of the Flower Council of Holland and a former sponsor of this show. Two other suites were also transformed with foliage and flowers. And the idea was to change the way we feel through plants. You may remember that I got a chance to actually visit and stay in one of these rooms, the Productivity Suite, designed by Oliver Heath, who is an expert in biophilic design. So I gave Oliver a call to find out what biophilia actually means and how it impacts us in our homes. Well, I think the one thing we can say is we know that plants make us happy. Yes, you can hear how happy it's making me just standing on that soft, squidgy mat of green. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, either a legend or a super fan, you can access the full interview with Michael Perry on my Patreon feed now. But for now, back to Oliver. And my first question was, what exactly is biophilia? 
Advisory is kind of a relatively new term for a lot of people, but actually it's an idea that's been around for some time. In fact, it was popularized by the American biologist Edward O. Wilson in the 1980s. Um, and essentially, biophilia means a love of nature, and it explains humans' innate attraction to nature and natural processes. That essentially explains that kind of uh, idea of why we choose to go to the beach, the mountains, and the forest when we go on holiday. You know, we go to these places to reduce stress, to aid our mental and physical recuperation. So biophilic design really is a set of principles that we can use to enhance that connection to nature in buildings, particularly, I feel, in spaces in the urban location, uh, spaces like many of the space we find in, in the middle of the city of London. Um, finding ways of bringing elements of nature into buildings has been proven across all sorts of building typologies to help to have enormous benefits on humans, um, proving lots of kind of lots of cases that it's actually very good at reducing costs and improving building outcomes. Now, this is obviously something that I guess my listeners and I have known for a long time that plants are good for you because uh, we're all very keen plant growers. How did you go about selecting the plants for the room that you designed? This was a really interesting project. So we were contacted by Joy of Plants to um, consider bringing lots of plants into a hotel room and then, you know, seeing what it looked like and how that benefited people that were coming to stay. So we were given a room in this beautiful hotel in Allgate East uh, called the Lehman Lock Hotel, a relatively new place and um, beautiful rooms. So we had a good start already. What we decided to do was to separate these rooms and basically it was like a suite. So essentially we've got a bathroom, a bedroom area, a lounge area, and then also a kind of kitchen and workspace. And we were given the theme of a productivity suite. So essentially, it was a room for a tired, weary, disorientated business traveler. So what we wanted to do was really to enhance each of those four spaces with an approach of what plants we might bring in and how that might benefit each individual space. So we separated it into a bedroom space, a lounging relaxation space, uh, a workspace and kitchen area, and then a bathroom space. Uh, and really, we just decided to pick plants that went into each of those spaces in, uh, individually. And when it comes to filling a hotel room with plants, what are the practical challenges? I guess one of the things is you couldn't actually permanently attach anything to any surfaces. Yeah, there were a number of challenges. Of course, it's an, it's an existing hotel that's fully functioning, um, it is, like I said, beautifully designed, and so we weren't allowed to attach anything to any of the walls or the floors uh, or anything to the ceilings, no pictures. Uh, so, you know, every project you do, there are limitations, and that becomes part of the brief. So what we were looking for were opportunities to do slightly unusual things like hanging plants. Um, so suspending plants is one of my favorite things, and I think it adds an enormous benefit um, because often we just have plants on the floor and actually what we believe is that it's quite nice to see plants in your, the periphery of one's vision. They're not just coming up from the floor but also hanging down. Um, and in a way, the concept of the room is that we really wanted to create a, a great sense of, of it being a, of a lush, diverse forest. Um, so getting that real sense of richness and diversity of plants was important. They're so not just having plants going up on the floor but 
fixed to the walls and also hanging down um, vertically from higher up. So kind of lots of different approaches. So we used um, any bits of furniture to raise plants off the floor. We concealed um, plant plinths behind the sofa. We used clothes drying racks uh, in the windows so that we could suspend plants down. So lots and lots of ways of using plants uh, in different ways to, to raise them off the floor and also to allow us to use trailing plants hanging down. I thought it was really clever the way you had, I wasn't sure what they were actually, the way that you put that framework into the window to allow you to have things hanging down. That was really clever because I think that's a problem that a lot of people face, that the fixings um, are not that might be there, like using a curtain rod or whatever, might not be strong enough. And that seemed like a really clever way of adding hanging plants to a window say if you're in a rented property a great way of doing yeah. it yeah well i think one of the nice things about this project was our ownership of this space was very much like the way that a lot of people are owning space now in that they're they're renting it you know they're not allowed to decorate or put anything on the walls or damage any surface so we faced the issue that you know many many people face today and i think that was quite a nice opportunity to demonstrate that actually bringing plants into spaces, particularly your own home, can have such an enormous impact in the quality of the space, the experience, and of course, the overall design, look and feel of the space. So finding these little ways of doing things was uh, was quite nice and quite gratifying. So the things that we used at the window were essentially um, spring-loaded uh, clothes drying racks. Um, and it's, what happens is basically you can adjust them. So they're sort of telescopic. So you adjust them to being slightly bigger than the opening. And then you use the spring-loaded bits to kind of um, push up against the ceiling and the floor, meaning that they actually become remarkably stable. And so it was a very nice, neat, very cost-effective device for getting these plants higher up without damaging any surfaces. That's a really top tip. I'm going to be looking at those <laughs> myself because that, that seems like a really great way of doing it. And you describe yourself as a biophilic designer. Can you tell me a bit about some of the other ways that biophilia comes into projects that you work on? I think for a lot of people, uh, biophilia means filling plants with, uh, uh, filling spaces with plants. Um, but actually, there's a lot more to it. So basically, biophilia is um, a human-centered approach to design, and it's really about how we create better spaces for people. How do we create spaces that really deliver on the intended function, and how do we get people to being at their best when they're in those spaces? So when I talk about that, it's about how do you reduce stress that can be so damaging to productivity, but also our communication with other people, and also how do we help people to be in spaces, to work, and not get overwhelmed and not to feel too exhausted. But essentially, there are three core principles to biophilic design. The first is how we bring real forms of nature into the space or allow people to look onto them. So it might be views onto plants or maybe trees. It might be about how we bring natural light in spaces or fresh air or even water features in, in more extreme examples. So it's those real sensory forms of nature. The second aspect is what we call indirect references to nature. And this is how we use natural materials, colors, textures, patterns, and even technologies that remind us or evoke a feeling of nature in spaces. And the third one is remembering that as human beings, we react to spaces in all sorts of different ways. And it's about creating spaces that are exciting and stimulating and aspirational, but also spaces that are calming, relaxing, and restorative. So we kind of pick and choose 
elements from each of these three core principles to enhance the intended activity. So when I talk about that, I mean like, you know, if you design a school, you design it so that the children can learn better and faster and get better test results. Um, if you design a hospital, you design it so that patients get better faster with less medication and that the people who work in those spaces also feel less stress and have, can have a better live work balance. In a hotel environment, you want people to come in and feel immediately relaxed and to become restored through being in that space and to have a connection to the local environment. So what we're really doing is looking at, you know, how do we use elements of nature to make people feel happier and healthier, less stressed and more recuperated? Is there any steer on, you know, how many plants do we need in our homes to get this benefit? Is one plant that we really love and nurture enough or do we need to be really filling our homes with plants in the way that you did in the productivity suite? No, I mean, I think the productivity suite is, is something of an extreme example. But I've got to say, you know, the reaction that people have when they walk into that room is an immediate smile coming onto their face. Uh, and that is really lovely to see, you know, just like that. It's what they call a Duchenne smile. It's like an involuntary smile, which is what you get when you give somebody a bunch of flowers. And we tend to get that when we when we see sort of nature, particularly in an unusual setting. I, I think, you know, just get people started looking after one or two plants. I think very quickly people realize the enormous benefit those plants bring, particularly when you take them away. You, you see how empty a space suddenly looks. Having plants in spaces, you know, just bring one or two in and then what you suddenly find is, you know, you sort of become a little bit addicted to looking after them. Before you know it, you kind of have a lot more plants than you kind of ever imagined or that's kind of what my wife tells me. I mean, I guess that's one thing that I would say is that some people and most of my family are included in this group actually don't really seem to notice how many plants are in our house? I want, I guess maybe if I took them all away, they probably would suddenly be aware. And I guess the numbers have been gradually building. But there is this issue of plant blindness. Is Biophilia able to overcome that? I think ultimately what you're talking about is, is a, quite a, a serious disconnection from nature that happens when we live in cities. Um, you know, rather shockingly, we spend 90% um, of our lives indoors. Currently, 90% equally of the British population live in urban areas. And of course, when you live in a city, yeah, of course you have a, a disconnection from nature. You, you're not looking out onto forests and trees and fields and plants and flowers all the time. You're not surrounded by this stuff. So we've become, I think, disconnected from it. And I think that is very dangerous because actually our health and well-being on this planet is directly linked to the health and well-being of nature around us on a, on a much wider scale. So, you know, Spending time outside, whether it's uh, at the beach, in a local park, in a local woodland or forest, is really important for just recognizing the enormous benefits of, uh, of nature. What we're now seeing is actually health services in England or, or Scotland um, prescribing time spent in nature as a means to benefit mental health. And this is something that has been going on for some time in Japan, where they have a process called Shinrin-yoku, uh, which translates as forest bathing. And it's literally uh, that idea that time prescribed and spent exercising and walking just very gently through woods and forests 
is enormously beneficial for both your, your psychological and your physiological well-being. It's in part the exercise, the fresh air. It's about breathing in these naturally occurring elements they call photoncides that are emitted from the earth and the trees and the leaves around us. Being in that space with the gentle movement, the colors, the textures has been proven uh, in numerous studies to benefit our well-being. And I think um, connecting and recognizing the enormous benefit that we have with nature is, uh, is, is absolutely fundamental to the wider survival of, of civilization and human beings on our planet. Well, oh, that's, that's a great message to end on. Oliver Heath, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And, and I hope you really enjoyed your stay. I really did. I really did. Yes, it was Lovely. great. Although I did find myself being so productive that I suddenly realised it was very late at night and I'd been working away because I was sat so comfortably surrounded <laughs> by plants. I suddenly thought, gosh, it's really late. But I did sleep really, really well. So uh, that was a good Oh, that's thing. great to hear. Not, and I did also Lovely. find myself doing a bit of plant care because I noticed there were a couple of ferns that were a bit dry. So they were in the sink overnight getting a bit... <laughs> A bit of a drink. Oh, nice. So Thank you very that's much. That's all right. Well, I mean, I think that's the nice thing about plants, isn't it? That hopefully it encourages us to bring out our nurturing side. And, and so that happened to me. And, and uh, yeah, I was glad to see that they perked up overnight. And um, that yeah, makes yeah. you feel good, which is yeah. a wonderful thing. If you can if you can make something thrive, then that feels good. So, yeah, it was great. Yeah, well, you know, this, this, this idea of thriving, um, you know, in a way, we filled our room with, with like 150 plants of all different species. And the idea is, is, is that we wanted to create a real sense of richness and diversity in the room that in some way mimics the sort of diversity we find when we go into a forest. And the immediate inference is that when you walk into the room, you know, this is a space where plant life cannot just survive, but also thrive and flourish. And you get that with this immediate sort of like overwhelming wall of green leaves. And so, you know, if you see the plants can flourish, then, you know, we think, well, maybe humans can too. And so it does give that sense that this really is a space that can support life and help life to flourish, um, which I think is a lovely message for the buildings that we that are so important to our lives. Check out the show notes at janeperone.com for some pictures of the productivity suite and more info on Oliver and Biophilia. And now meet the listener. My name is Eva and I live in Derby, UK. I fell in love with houseplants when I was a child. I had a small cacti collection, but at the moment I'm really obsessed with them. I've got around 100 houseplants in a small one bedroom flat. And to be honest, my partner is not really that happy about it, but he still tolerates it, which is great. I also try to do my bit for my community, so I propagate my plants and I sell them in my local ethical whole food shop and all the money from the sales go to their charity of the month. Question 1. There's a fire and all your plants are about to burn. Which one do you grab as you escape? Probably my golden potters because my mum gave it me and she lives in the Czech Republic so I don't really see her as often as I'd like to and every time I see the plant I just think of her. Question 2. What is your favourite episode of On The Ledge? That's definitely got to be episode 7 about chilies because I really enjoy the competition between all those helicopter pilots about who's going to grow the hottest chilli. I think it was really sweet. 
Question three, which Latin name do you say to impress people? To be fair, I don't really use Latin names when I talk to people face to face because none of the people I talk to are plant nerds, so I only use common names. But I do use Latin names on the internet when I talk to real plant nerds. Question four, crassulation, acid metabolism or gutation? I would say gutation. Question five. Would you rather spend £200 on a variegated monstera or £200 on 20 interesting cacti? No, that's such a difficult question because variegated monstera has been on my wish list for over a year. But £200 is just way too much money to pay for one plant. So I think I'll go with 20 interesting cacti. Eva, and if you want to take part in Meet the Listener, drop a line to on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. Now, we're continuing on the cactus theme with question of the week, which comes from Maggie. Maggie's wondering whether there are any exceptions to the no watering in winter rule for cacti and succulents. Specifically, she's using a grow light, and does that mean that the plants will need a bit of extra water? Could I be supplementing with too much light? Should the plants have a dormant period and a break? And should you fertilise when there's new growth in winter? All great questions. I, well, I'm just going to give you my own personal experience on this. My plants here in the office, they're anything from about 12 degrees centigrade to up to about 18 degrees centigrade, depending on whether I'm in here or not. But most of the time they're around 13 to 15 degrees centigrade. They're under grow lights, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. They're IKEA Vaxa bulbs. So they are getting extra light, but they are getting hardly any water I think most of them haven't been watered at all since November there's a couple that have gone a bit wrinkly which I've given a drop of water to but they will be fine all the way through until spring uh, even if they do go a bit wrinkly generally they can cope with that it's overwatering they can't cope with so my answer would be if you're using a grow light then the rule that you don't water in winter should still stand. I mean, observe your plants and see what's going on. If your plants become incredibly wrinkled, then yes, they may need some extra light. And certainly if temperatures are normal room temperature, 18 to 21 degrees centigrade, then the plants may try to put on growth. But generally speaking, if they're under a grow light, that growth won't get all leggy and horrible. So adjust as you go. I think in terms of feed in winter, I would not feed any cacti and succulents in winter. There are these very complicated tables of which cacti and succulents choose to have dormancy in winter and which ones have dormancy in summer. And you can look at these and everyone I look at tells me different information. So I just observe my plants and if something's growing actively, then I would give it a bit more water and I probably would give it the very, very, very occasional, very weak feed. But remember that cacti and succulents survive on very little in the way of nutrients anyway. So, you know, with those, you can really get away without any any adding any fertilizer over the winter time. So as I say, the main thing is just observe your plants and what's happening with the things that you're growing. The grow lights shouldn't make the plants go into massive amounts of growth. They'll just stop them being etiolated. That's the plan to keep the, the any growth that does happen kind of nice and stocky, and uh, not all leggy, as you would get with plants that are grown just in the very low light conditions that we do get in winter in large parts of the world. The other part of the question, could I be supplementing with too much light? 
I find it hard to imagine how th that would be possible with cacti and succulents. I think most cacti and succulents are adapted to really high light conditions and they're probably not going to be bothered by having um, some grow lights on them in winter unless you're literally keeping the grow light one centimeter away from the plant, which might cause a bit of a problem. Most of mine are sort of about 20 to 30 centimeters away from the plant. And that seems to work fine. But yeah, these plants are so well adapted to the conditions of high light that I don't think the grow lights will cause them any problems. So I hope that helps. Um, yeah, as I say, or as so often is the case, it's observation, keeping a really good eye on your cacti and succulents over winter, looking out for problems. You may find mealybugs emerge from little cracks and crevices. Uh, look out for wrinkly bits and make sure that your plants are happy and that way you should be able to get through the winter okay. The other thing I would say is if you've got any cacti and succulents that you haven't repotted since you bought them, particularly if you bought them from uh, a non-specialist nursery, I would definitely repot them into something very well drained before you go into the winter period. I know it's a bit late now to say that, but you could still repot now into pretty much dry cactus and succulent potting mix. I'm seeing so many strings of pearls that are dying because they've been bought by somebody who's left them in the potting mix that they were in and it just isn't right for the plants. So if that's you and you've got one of those pots of strings of pearls, Curio rolianus, uh, aka Senesio rolianus, that's looking miserable, get it out, re dry the roots off and repot it and hopefully your plants should recover. But I'm seeing so many of those at the minute that I thought it was worth mentioning. I'm planning to do a blog post on care of string of pearls because I'm seeing so many disasters on the internet. Uh, so look out for that coming soon. I hope that helps, Maggie. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line on theledgepodcast at gmail.com. and I'll be back next Friday with an extra special edition. I have done a podcast partnership with the RHS podcast and I'm going to be talking houseplants with Matt Pottage, who is the curator of Wisley No Less and Anne Swithinbank of Gardener's Question Time. And we have an absolute blast talking about houseplants. So that episode will be going out on my podcast and also on the RHS podcast in a unique collaboration. So I'm looking forward to that episode next week. I know you're going to love it. But for now, have a great week and I will speak to you before long, plant people. Take care. Bye. Music in this episode is Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, Chiefs by Jazar, and I Snost, I Lost by Dr. Turtle. All these tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. See the show notes at janeperone.com for details. <laughs>